0: If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I am your host, Brad Burke. I am a sports marketer in Chicago. Joining me via phone this week in our Brooklyn, New York bureau, it is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer Gareth Hughes. Gareth, uh, how are you holding up? As uh, I feel like everybody everywhere is getting a little bit tighter. (laughs) The news is getting a little bit harder to stomach. Uh, How how are how are you keeping your head in the game? Doing okay. You know, I was really. You know, a friend reached out recently
1: and they were like, how are you guys doing? And one of the things that jumped out, my wife wrote back, but one of the things that jumped out to me that I would agree with, but just made me happy was seeing her say homeschooling with our kids is going really well. Yeah. Um, And I agree. Like, no, listen, she's taken on 90% of it. But at the same time, our kids have kind of adopted it pretty easily. And... They're making it work. And that goes a long way to making everybody else's life
0: survivable.
1: So that is what I would lead with and say, that's good
0: news. How about you? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how else to describe this, but I feel like in this uh, cluster of a year, uh, Mm -hmm. trying to relish the small wins (laughs) is something I'm getting less apologetic for. Like I planted a couple of trees in our backyard and I planted like a little patch of grass and Mm -hmm. they're all kind of like the grass grew pretty quick and the trees are all surviving. And I'm like, hell yeah, buddy. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) I'll take that win. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, Somebody on Twitter this past week
1: tweeted something to the effect of rather than saying like I'm behind or I can't keep up. Why not say I'm doing as best as I can Given the circumstances we're working under, and I was right. like, "Well, that is some really healthy reframing right
0: there." <laughs> so,
1: anyway, well, speaking uh, it's of a good way to look at it,
0: speaking of healthy reframing, we've we've sort of been doing <laughs> that with our show of late. As I, I feel like we have, yes, we still talk to the sports media you want to hear from, t- to to current and former athletes, but we've also been shaking it up, bringing in some guests from different backgrounds, and and kind of aiming them at. Sports culture. If you remember, Huey Lewis came on a few weeks back, a months back now. Uh, you know, sometime in this pandemic, Gareth, I, I can't tell anymore. Um, but we asked you. No, this is
1: Brad. It's March two hundredth. Yeah,
0: so. <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, but we asked. We talked to Huey about you know hanging out with the greats of the 49ers era in the eighties. That was a lot of fun. Uh, last episode, we had Reply All host Alex Goldman talking about life as a non fan. And this week, you look, I'm going full civics class here, bro, because
1: <laughs> with the
0: election coming up and with everybody just losing their minds on Twitter all day long about the election. I straight up called up my congressman and I said, why don't you come on the show and let's talk about sports? And you know what, Gareth? We did. <laughs> that is awesome. By the way, the way you just said the, like, I called my congressman.
1: How strange was it that at one point Chuck Berry wrote a song and just said, so I called the congressman and he said, nope, like you just <laughs> call up a congressman,
0: <laughs> you know, Well, like, I, mean, I didn't, I didn't hit his cell, but like, you know, I went through his, his people and they were very, they're very nice. And uh, you and Chuck Berry, dude, you're doing the hard work. Yeah, that's I like right. this. So look, um, our guest today is Congressman Sean Casten. Uh, as you know, listeners of the show know Gareth lives in New York. I live in the suburbs of Chicago. He is our so represent- he
1: represents both of us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs>
0: he's our he's our representative from the Illinois Sixth District, the Fighting Sixth, as Stephen Colbert would have said once upon a time. And <laughs> uh, look, I, Gareth had a lot of fun with this conversation. Uh, it was kind of great to you know you, you see people's name on yard signs, you see them in like. You know, banner ads and YouTube clips, but it was actually kind of cool to pull back the curtain on, you know, my own elected official and break down his love of sports. I mean, he grew up on the East Coast, so we talked about, you know, the 86 ah. Mets, uh, talked about uh, much like you moving to the New England area and getting into the Red Sox and Boston sports uh, during the uh, the aughts of this, uh, of this century. Oh
1: man. Uh, transcendent time there. I mean, like <laughs> as our mutual friend has described it, Dan Pribble, uh, looking back on the 2004 Red Sox quote, that was a singular experience. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> um, um, is but- that sort of, are those his teams, not the, The
0: Chicago team. Yeah, I mean, we talk about like... At the risk of playing spoiler here. Yeah, no, it it was good. I mean, he talked pretty openly about, you know, how his loyalties have sort of, you know, shifted over the years based on where he's moved around to. And I I, I, candidly, dude, I found that super refreshing. The last thing I wanted was to get on the phone with uh, a guy running for office who does like the John Cusack. Like, hey, I'm going to swap my Cubs hat for my Sox hat (laughs) as I walk down the street to another stadium. Like, I don't need people to put on airs about their sports fandom and
1: Brad Brad as we were talking last night and prep for this and talks about some like notorious political gaffes over the years John Kerry in the run-up to the 2004 election talking about Manny Ortiz did not (laughs) play well for him right you know like just don't be a sports fan if that's not your thing, well, you know? Well, he but had like, a great
0: line where I think he was like, look, if you're not going to vote for someone because of, like, which teams they root for, the, there's probably a larger issue at play. <laughs> than right,
1: right. That's a fair point. Uh, so.
0: But what was cooler was we talked a little bit more about his personal connection to sports. He is a father of two daughters like myself. So we talked about, you know, coaching his his girls' teams. We talk about he's on, I think, what he described as the U.S. Soccer Caucus, which is the group of uh, members of Congress who play Soccer against one another. We we talked kinda candidly about that and and then we close out by talking about, you know, just this moment in sports. Athletes becoming more politically engaged, um, and what he feels about them using their voice to advocate for uh, you know, changes to policy so uh, whether you live in my district or not i think it's a fun conversation with a member of our government i also think if you live in the district it's just a better way to get to know someone who's running for office and i had a lot of fun i I really appreciate the congressman coming on and i think you're going to enjoy the conversation then after the interview stick around gareth and i will be back to distract you Am I your first sports interview? Have you have you made the rounds on any uh you know sports based programs since being elected?
2: Uh, <laughs> remarkably given my you know, you know, since I was I was really almost made captain of the JV soccer team in my junior year of high school, so it's uh... <laughs> So it's, it's remarkable I haven't been interviewed on sports issues yet, but yeah, yeah, I think you're number one.
0: Scott Van Pelt is like, he's he's chomping at the bit, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I promise at some point during this program, I'm going to find a way to blame Mitch McConnell for the Bears' lack of a QB for the last couple
2: decades. Oh, yeah. there you go. There you go. There you go. Why <laughs> yeah. not? Why not? Right. Uh, okay, you mentioned we're,
0: we're, we're going to talk about your teams. We're going to talk about favorite moments, just the culture of sports, especially during a time when um, athletes are, are speaking out on society and political issues but i do want to start with just you mentioned you know uh playing jv um and and that kind of thing did did you play sports growing up and if so what what was kind of your bag uh
2: so it's funny my my mom teases me to this day that in sixth grade i had to write an autobiography of the rest of my life <laughs> and and my autobiography said that i was going to be a professional soccer player but i knew that um you know, that, that, that would only really survive me until about 30 or so when I'd be too old to play. And so I was really going to be working on my cartooning skills. So I had a skill to fall back on, um, yeah, professional soccer
0: into cartooning, always the safest of routes.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, um, no, you know, I, I, you know, I played soccer all as a kid, but the honest to goodness truth is I, I should have run cross country. It's the, Mm. you know, the only thing I was ever really good at was, was long distance endurance sports. Um, and you know, late in life, I end up running a lot of marathons. I actually, my my peak athletic accomplishment was that I, I represented Team USA in men's long distance duathlon in Switzerland. Um, that's a very obscure sport, but it's <laughs> something that you can do if you can if you can keep moving for eight hours and not stop. Yeah, I've and done it, tri- By it, the
0: way, I've done some triathlon. Duathlon is is just is it swim bike or
2: sorry run bike uh, run run bike run. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Uh, but um, but the uh, you know, basically I ran cross country in eighth grade. I was pretty good. And I thought the kids on the cross country team were dorks and the kids on the soccer team were cool. And so I played <laughs> soccer all through high school, <laughs> rode the bench a lot, and then played rugby all through college um, until I got one too many concussions and and then finally started Sort of running and biking, which is which is most of what I do now.
0: You you you're you know at risk of losing your northwest suburb cross country uh you know voter base here by calling out the dorks on the team. So uh, I'll be sure <laughs> I'm, to.
2: I am I am only referring to the eighth graders at Woodlands High School in 1985. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: make no dork. Tough beat for someone from that class listening to this. Like oh man, I got enemies in Washington. Um, now look, you, I know you coach your, you have two daughters, uh, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I have two daughters as well. Um, now they haven't started playing organized sports. I did take my oldest to uh soccer practice and uh, we quit when she was laying down, pretending to sleep in the goal as, uh, when a kid who doesn't like sleeping pretends to sleep, you know, it's over. Um, but I was wondering like, what's your experience coaching your, uh, I'm imagining you, you've coached your girls teams and, and what kind of, you know, style are you as a coach and mentor to, to youth athletes? Uh,
2: so it, it the honest truth is I should give all credit to my wife, uh, because they were short of coaches and my wife agreed to, to um, take some time coaching. And, and so I was really the assistant coach, um, mm. helping out. It's uh, I have tremendous respect for coaches. It's really hard to coach your own kids. Um, the, you know, the, you don't want to play favorites. You, uh, you know, you've, and of course, you know, driving back in the car, you know, I'm trying to be a dad giving constructive criticism and, and kids are sitting there saying, um, you know, everybody else's coaching stopped when the game ended. I'd like my coaching to stop when the game ends as well. Um, and we also had frankly, and this is, um, you know, a little bit of a dad brag, my 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 i didn't coach my older daughter she didn't play soccer my younger daughter did and she really got to be pretty good and but she had but she was good because she was fast and the you know and and so you know i'd sit there watching her as a parent and saying okay your your ball skills are not that good you're you're not doing a very good job of moving to open space but when you get the ball you're so much quicker than the other kids that you keep you just run down and and you score and at some point they're all (laughs) going to catch they're all going to catch up to you and so I'd sort of sit there and say, all right, here's some things you should work on and she'd say, um, I scored eight goals today. Why do I need to work on anything? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and that was the point when we realized we really need to we we need to get you in a in a league where you're you're gonna be, you know, not the good kid on the team and and knock you around a little bit and not be coached by your dad anymore. So I really enjoyed it for a couple of years, but I think we got as as she got as far as she could with my coaching talents.
0: Sounds like you had the youth uh, soccer version of the Allen Iverson practice diatribe during his press conference, which I yeah, really
2: exactly exactly
0: so are you still a soccer follower to this day and is it something that you've been able to bond with your um with your daughters around i mean i, I just know as someone who mm-hmm. is introducing my my children to sports i have a seven-year-old and a, a three-year-old when we were watching like the u.s women's national team uh you know when win the world cup it was very exciting for them i think also i've learned representation and how much it matters taking my daughter to like a red stars game and she's marveling at are all the players women are all the refs women i'm like yeah and and, yeah. and, and seeing that uh, really kind of struck home for me in terms of how much it matters to expose them to these uh you know women athletic models so w- what's the role soccer has played from a viewership perspective with your own relationship with your kids
2: um my my kids frankly don't watch a ton of sports you know we've we've taken them to you know we've taken them to uh the, the, we've taken them to a fire game they got hugely addicted to the, you know, the women's world cup for totally obvious reasons. And, and that was cool. The other thing that's frankly been nice and, you know, and a lot of this now with my, you know, with my current life, I'm just not home enough to watch sports at all, much less with the kids. But we, for about five or six years, we got, you know, hugely addicted to the tour de France, which I think is that cycling, I think is one of those sports that's horrible in person, but absolutely fantastic to watch on television. (laughs) Right and and we went to which they got a huge kick out of it actually may have been in palatine they had the the women's um national crit championships about five years ago Hmm. and uh um, bob roll who you know is the um the the announcer who covers the uh the tour de france the guy who's got the gap tooth and um he was he was announcing for this this race and you know Watching a crit is a lot of fun because they keep going by, and because it was all these women's teams going, it was just really cool. Like they're because they had been watching the Tour de France, you know, for a couple of years and saying, you know, why is there no women's Tour de France? And you're like, that's a really good question. Like they should be. And then we went up, and and it's you know things you think about when you've got when you got daughters. Uh, it was just nice to go and share with them and see, you know, this guy who they had seen on the television during the Tour de France who was now out there um, announcing. um you know, for the, these just, you know, unbelievably uh, talented um, sprinters, you know, essentially.
0: Yeah. I, I was, I really bummed the Olympics was moved a year. I mean, not from a health perspective. I'm glad they took care of the athletes, but my daughter was at that age where she was going to meet like Katie Ledecky and Lily King and some of those um great athletes. So we're, we're, we've got the clock set for next summer.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, my, my daughters were bummed because I, I played, uh, uh, this is kind of fun. There is a there is a congressional soccer caucus, which I am proud to be a member of. <laughs> I I got to be a member because, you know, famously, we do this congressional baseball game where, you know, they play at the national stadium and it's all members yeah. playing against each other. There is also um, somewhat less famously a congressional soccer game. And that's somewhat less famous in no small part because you can you know, you can be a, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a elderly member of Congress, and you know, and still swing a bat, but the <laughs> but the average the average member of Congress cannot run up and down a soccer field um, for any extended <laughs> periods of time. So the so the result is that we had, it's open to members and staff, and we had um, myself and Rick Larson were the only Democratic members playing. Oh. On the on the Republican side, it was uh, you know Anthony Gonzalez, ex football player um uh Dan Crenshaw Garrett Graves who went down with a went down with an injury midway through which I tease him about to this day that he he couldn't hang with the big boys (laughs) um and uh Darren LaHood and we then had rounded out with a uh with a whole bunch of of staffers who were all younger and in much better shape including Maddie's sister um, who played on our team and and then we still couldn't field a big enough team so they brought in a bunch of ringers um so uh um Uh, We had some people from the World Cup team who were playing with us. And then uh, the other team ended up getting uh, Kobe Kobe Jones played for the Republican team. Oh, Kobe, uh, come on. What are you doing? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I know. And so he was running around and. You know, and and all I knew how to do was to play dirty. So, like, you know, every time they got the ball I'm, you know, yelling, Coldie, I'm right behind you. You got support. You got That's when <laughs> when when,
0: like. it, when do you just pick up the phone and call Megan Rapino? You know, or <laughs> well, Becky Sauerbrunn. No, you know, so you got a is, you got a bench full of uh, really progressive, uh, great athletes ready to go, my friend.
2: Well, no, so this is the so this is the bummer of it. You mentioned about the Olympics. The so we were supposed to, after they won, the Kathy Castor, who's the coach of our team and the head of the Congressional Soccer Caucus. Said I've I've got to set up Megan Rapino and and like a couple of other members are going to come out and we're going to do something with the Congressional Soccer Caucus, and so my daughters were like, all right, clear clear the decks. I'm skipping school. You tell me as soon as this happens, and then and then COVID hit and you know all of that sort of stuff died down. So uh, you know hopefully we'll find some other opportunity, but it's at least an incentive for me to stay in shape long enough to stay on this Soccer Caucus for a little <laughs> while longer.
0: That's right, that's right. Um, okay, so l- let's talk about your. F- Personal fandom. I'm someone who moved around as a kid, so I picked up teams from Baltimore, Ohio. Ultimately, kind of settled in Illinois. And now I've I've kind of rallied around a lot of the Chicago teams. Where are your allegiances, and how are they sort of shaped throughout your life?
2: So similar to you, I moved. So I I I was born in Ireland, lived in Indiana for a couple of years, and grew up in New York. So we moved to we moved to Westchester County, New York, when I was six, and lived there until. You know I went to college and I haven't lived back there since but so you know living in New York from uh, what would that have been 77 to 89 and I you know what I knew with certainty as a kid was that I really really didn't like the Yankees <laughs> 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 the I, I you know it, I couldn't even tell you why I didn't like him I you know I, I liked Mattingly I didn't like Steinbrenner. I liked Winfield, and I hated that Steinbrenner was always mean to Dave Winfield. And so for whatever kid logic, so I became a Mets fan. And I think if your baseball team wins a World Series when you're 15, there's no it's better over. time to have, you know, the, you know, I could tell you to this day, their starting lineup and their relievers, and, you know, I was at the game when Rafael Santana hit one of his two home runs of the season, little tiny shortstop. <laughs> um, the and you know that whole 86 world series and everything that led into that and you know my brother teases me to this day that I thought the game was over and I couldn't bear to watch the ticker tape come down and actually went upstairs and then my brother called and he's like the bases are loaded you got to get back down here <laughs> <laughs> um and so so those were sort of my you know my touch points as a kid's so were just you know watching the Mets and that you know the unbelievable talent on that you know 85 to 88 team and, and how much of that, you know, was just totally destroyed by drugs. I mean, I, I think if, if there was a better pure hitter in baseball than Daryl Strawberry, I'd ever saw him. Um, but talk about like just an amazing talent that flamed out way too quick. Um, and then, of course, the next year, you know, the the Giants were my team and they they won that Super Bowl. So, that, you know, when Lawrence Taylor was in his prime and and Pepper Johnson and... and uh, you know, just all those, that amazing offensive line they had. Um, So that was sort of all like my, my youth was growing up with that. And then, you know, college in Vermont lived in Boston, grad school in New Hampshire, Um, you know, 20 years lived in new England and I get up there and I'm like, all right. So um, I, I grew up rooting for underdogs that never win. And I don't like the Yankees, the Red Sox seem like super obvious here. Right. And, (laughs) and then, uh, and then if you recall, um, Parcells came up to coach the Patriots and brought basically the entire 86 <laughs> offensive line to be his his, his assistant coaches. You know? yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, well, this is like super easy. Like, I got teams that are never going to win, but I can, you know, I can start watching. them." And then, of course, like, you know, this sort of huge New England dynasty started. And, you know, so it was nice to be there through my, you know, through that point in your life when, okay, you're not 15 anymore. But you've got an income and you're single and and you've got a job that is a 20 year old job. You don't have to work ridiculously long hours, you know, you're which right. means that you can always you can always cut out of work and head to Fenway and buy a scout ticket or whatever else. And, uh, you know, and they took off and started winning. And then I moved to Chicago in 2007 and by rights. I really should be a diehard Cub fan because that whole metaphor, like everything happened in the same way, right? Yeah. Theo Epstein packs up, leaves, leaves the Red Sox, brings, brings, you know, some of his, some of the stars, that old team over here and takes off. Um, except that I moved here in 2007 and I think the, you know, within two years of moving here, the Red Sox won, the Patriots won, the Bruins won, the Celtics won. And and Rex Grossman lost 60 yards on three plays in the playoffs. Remember that? Oh yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I've got people here saying, "So oh, you're going to become a fan of all these teams at hand. I'm like, give me just one reason, like maybe. <laughs> 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 so, uh, so at any rate, you know, the, the, and the, and the truth is, you know, you know, now you get to a point where you got a family, you got kids, uh, you got jobs that have long hours. It's, it's hard to get that same level of passion that I had when I had youth and free time. So my, my sports allegiances sort of froze, but, but take me back to uh, take me back to Gooden on the mound and Gary Carter patching, patching and Keith Hernandez at first base and, um, and watching George Foster step out of the batter's box. Every time an airplane flies over the field at Shea, like, I mean, those are all the memories. Of my <laughs> <laughs> Did you have like,
0: like I remember growing up in Cincinnati, so I had like a Boomer Esiason poster where with him in short shorts on the wall that says like Boomtown USA, like the most ridiculous thing. Did you do you, do you remember fondly any like random sports memorabilia, paraphernalia that you owned as a kid that just always sticks out?
2: No, I, I don't know about memorabilia. I mean, the hard thing about being a Mets fan is that there were people that as a kid who I thought were like so so like cool and iconoclastic and you could always count them in a pinch and and you look at what their lives become now and it's a little cringy like lenny dykstra was one cool dude yeah dykstra I, blocked you know, the, me on
0: twitter I, I, <laughs> he's the yeah, worst and, and,
2: and like i mean like the way his life has gone since it just makes you cringe but but you know there was that moment and you know nobody mentions the two of them in the same breath anymore but but lenny dykstra for a couple of years was was the second coming of Pete Rose. You know yeah. he yeah. always always got on base always dove head first um you, you know you know just this like who's this complete love of the game and it and it totally doesn't comport with the you know the person you think of now um but you, you know i don't know i guess you had to be there
0: <laughs> what i like is you talk very candidly about your fandom but in a way i feel like a lot of people who get into public life or politics feel this need to pander or like, oh, now I'm I'm going to throw on my my dusty socks cap and, and present myself as like a mega fan. It feels very John Cusack to me. And I like how you're just like, look, I, I live in this area. I have this, sort of these other allegiances, but my focus has shifted a little bit. I don't need to put on airs or or play the like a game in terms of, um, you know, where my allegiances lie. But do you, do you feel pressure to do that ever now that you've stepped into like an elected position?
2: you know i, I don't know I, if if you're going to win or lose an election based on which sports team you like um you probably got other issues <laughs> yeah that's true
0: well tell that to Tommy Tuberville uh, we're we're about to see <laughs> see how far that yeah, goes right?
2: yeah that's probably true i mean I, I i mean to be honest whenever i hear you know my colleagues um you know including some high profile ones talk about how excited they were about you know the result in some game the night before i'm sitting there and thinking like uh, there's no way you had time to watch that game. Right. (laughs) Right. Right? There's like, like, like we were at the same events. I know how long these days are. I know how hard you work. Like, there's no way you were like, it's, it's cool that you're, you know, pick your team, your Ravens won last night, but you weren't watching it, you know? And uh, I don't know. You got to be honest about where it is. I wish I had time to watch it. uh, (laughs) Well, you uh, know,
0: know, I mentioned off the top, like we're in a unique a time for sports, in that so many athletes now have found a renewed sense of purpose with their platform um, on societal issues. From your perspective, what do you think about the ways that athletes have been been driving, um, you know, for racial justice, for societal change, a- and leveraging their platforms to speak out?
2: So this, this is going to sound weird and maybe over intellectual, but I have found since getting in this new line of work that I have, I have a new appreciation for what it must feel like to be LeBron James. Hmm. And, And, and I, and I say that because, you know, when, remember when LeBron first came up and he got, and he got all of this heat for traveling with his entourage and having, you know, his high school buddies on payroll. And, and there was always like a, a not, not so subtle racial dog whistle about it, right? You know, you're right. hanging out with your your gang, you know, and all these guys in hoodies. We all know the code words that people use for that. And the, you know, and, and I'm not sure I was totally, you know, woke and self-aware when I heard that because I couldn't possibly imagine, you know, what it would be like to be LeBron James. And And then you get elected. And all of a sudden, find yourself... You know, okay, nowhere near that level of celebrity, but on on television enough that when you walk around Palatine, you get recognized, um, and you become sort of keenly aware that when somebody comes and talks to you, um, are they talking to you because they are they are they are interested in a genuine human to human interaction, or are they talking to you because you represent something to them that they, that, you know, you have to maintain this fiction as, as one of my colleagues said, told me early on um, the, when you get elected, you immediately become a vessel for a lot of people's dreams. And, hmm. and, and you have to keep in mind that when people cheer for you, they aren't cheering for the vessel. Huh. Right. And, and you have to sort of figure out what is that thing that you represent to people. And, and, have your have your be self-aware enough to recognize that a that thing is not necessarily you but that b that thing has a real value to people you know if you 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 don't i don't want to break the thing that holds your dreams in it you know so you, you have to kind of burnish and maintain this thing that's not totally you but is hopefully close enough to who you are to be genuine and you know and and the only people who can really tell you that are your you know the the people who you knew and trusted before you got to that degree of celebrity, which is why now I feel like i I, I understand what drives a, a lebron. but but I mentioned all that in the context of your question, because in a dick Durbin had has this great I don't know that he's ever said this publicly, but he's mentioned this to me a couple of times privately that he he said, you know the if you gain a certain amount of political capital in this line of work, how do you use it? you know it's 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 super easy if if you get to a point where you can you know win an election by double digits, be safe for a while, if you just sit there and coast, shame on you. you know, but if you now have if you now have a platform where you can you can actually use that to move public opinion towards some you know some more more perfect tomorrow, that's a there's almost an obligation to do that. And I think there's an analogy there to, you know, to athletes, you know, and, and you get and look, I, I you know, I, I got mad respect for Jordan as an athlete, even though he kept my knicks out of the Eastern Conference final <laughs> finals championship every yeah, year when that. I was a kid. But but Jordan never used that platform to advance in the way that LeBron is. And maybe it was a different time he couldn't have. But but there is. <clears throat> There's something totally beautiful about, about the, the LeBrons of the world, the Kaepernicks of the world saying, okay, like I I became something that is now a vessel for your dreams. I now have the sports equivalent of political capital, and I'm going to use that to try to, to get you to think about some other things, you know, and to use that to sort of drive towards a brighter tomorrow and 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 don't get me wrong i'm not saying that they have an obligation to do that but i've got crazy respect that they chose to do it in the same way that i have mm-hmm. crazy respect for my colleagues who say you know okay i won by 30 points last cycle i'm going to do some things that may mean i only win by 15 next time but i'm going to i'm going to drive a conversation that has to happen mm-hmm. right like at at the end of the day that's what leadership is
0: 100% and and well, look, I'm at the end of my time with you. I, I really appreciate all uh all the time you've given me. Um, love the work you're doing in Washington. Any any final uh, predictions for the uh, for the sports landscape or the NFL season for me as you go?
2: Oh, boy, is it is it even gonna finish?
0: Uh, let's hope, uh, Yeah, it's it's getting touch and go. I, it, it's it's going to remain to be seen whether these non bubble structures can hold up across an entire season.
2: Yeah, I mean, especially for the sports that have that have so much contact. I mean, did I see the uh, somebody else? I thought saw just somebody else on the Patriots. I think just tested positive today. Um, You know, there just is a point where how do you you know how do you do that? I mean, I'm I don't know. Maybe we're all going to become huge fans of crew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: there you go. (laughs) Well, hey, uh, Congressman, thank you again for the time. I really appreciate it, and 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 best of luck to you. Uh, you know, here in the in the rest of the election season.
2: Thanks
0: so much. Stay safe. And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, they all do interesting things, and then we, the fans, tell them, stop pursuing your passions, get back to watching game film. Well, that's ridiculous. Life is just work and the things that that distract us from work. So on this show, we celebrate locker room distractions each week by telling you what's been distracting us. And Gareth and I are going to dive into a topic which seems to be dominating the Twitter sphere that we find ourselves in all too often, which are these debates about what is you know air quotes truly profound and what is not <laughs> and, and let's let's start cuz you and i both have like a top 5 list of things that at one point we found profound and and, and or meaningful and and now just you know not so much and i want to get in a little bit to the like the ground rules for like my mode of thought here because i think it might also better explain to people who are like why are you doing this like what what we see online that prompted this is that cool gareth Yes, that's fine. So, in short, I had three rules for how I was going to do this for myself, and you and I had not discussed these rules. We have just this was like my guiding, you know, north star. like? Mm-hmm. One, it was like I don't, I didn't want to include stuff that is universally regarded as, you know, air quotes, groundbreaking culture that just is easy to dunk on because of how often it's been copied or minimized or reevaluated. The ultimate example of this being catcher in the rye or something like that. Like it, yes, it at one point is probably like has burned everybody out. Um but I just don't know that we need to uh, it almost feels like too hot takey to be like, "Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut Holden Caulfield yeah, down yeah, to yeah, sides yeah. at this point, right?" You know who's overrated? The Beatles. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, There's yeah. a certain yeah. line where you have to kind of say, "You may not like this anymore, but like maybe you have to recognize that it did have a lot of meaning for a long time." Right. Fair. Yes. The second one was, and this is what we really see online, like trying to avoid the easy targets where there's almost no room to be in the middle anymore. Specifically, I'm thinking of like Kid A.
1: Table Radiohead. We're going to get to that later.
0: Okay. Totally fair. But I do think there are certain... like Infinite Jest is another one. It feels like you either have an opinion that's like, Infinite Jest is the most important book ever, or you're like, oh, it's total trash. I don't see a lot of people just go, yeah, I thought it was pretty good.
1: This does get into a lot of like very how we all have to live in ex- extreme culture now. Like you have to have a take on everything and you can't just be lukewarm, etc. So
0: yes. My third one was, this is about me more than the work itself. So like mm-hmm. w- when you say like things you found profound, you are really explaining what was going on in your life. Why did it resonate with you and what changed about you? The work is the work. So I, I don't, I don't want these to be considered like, hot take takedowns of very, things people very like.
1: Brad that is a very mature way to put this it's very smart it has no place in contemporary culture but I'm impressed by it so
0: <laughs> what do you what do you mean
1: by that no I mean it's a mature measured attitude to take about a person's relationship to art and therefore it has no place in contemporary culture. <laughs>
0: Get that shit out of here. The, so the final anyway. one, I, I guess this is like a three A. Was just like no hit jobs. Like I think you have to explain why you liked it, what the merits were at the time, and then how you sort of aged out of it. If that makes sense, it's not Got just it. like okay. this is trash. You have to admit you found it enjoyable. It was It's not like hey, I think a separate piece is worthless. <laughs> No, it has to be a separate piece. Was like separate my favorite piece book. Was a
1: hundred percent ruined for me by The Simpsons, but I didn't love it that much anyway. So
0: yes, yeah. So what's the line? Like, I hate John Knowles. Doesn't. It- <laughs> oh, me too. And
1: then she's like, she suddenly sees in her grandmother her place in the family. So
0: yeah, it's amazing. Super fun. <laughs> All right, why don't, I've been doing a lot of the setup, but I think I captured why we're doing this. I even included some things that.
1: I still love and like, as you'll see, um, just because I think it's important to like, I don't know, just because you like something doesn't mean you have to hate it forever. It just, your relationship can change. So right. there you go. All
0: right. Do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first?
1: I'll go first. And, uh, this is all, I don't want to say a joke, but this is a nod to you and our listeners and specifically your mother, which is a bad way to preface something. So I'll just move along with it. But number five would be profound, but then not uh, Stephen King from ages about 14 to (laughs) 30-something. You know, when I was in middle school and discovered Stephen King, and it was the first, in my head, like, mature adult stuff I had ever read, I thought it was the most out-there groundbreaking thing ever. And then I really turned my back on it, and, like, the... Gerald's Game, Rose Matter era, probably because I also wasn't ready to read things about like the anatomy of a marriage and um, abuse and things like that. Uh, And then I just kind of thought he was a purveyor of pulp and bad adaptations. And I turned my back on it. And then at a certain point, as you've heard, got back in with both feet. But I have to include that if we're taking an honest look at ourselves and for a little bit of humor. So Stephen King.
0: That's fair. I also think it's fine to look at those early works that we've been rereading this summer and enjoy them as, you know, pop lit and not like try to like, it's, it's okay to look at the stand and not try to make it seem like, you know, capital I important, if that makes sense. Uh Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got a book on my number five, Gareth. What is it? A little, a little book called "Bright Lights, Big City." (laughs) Ooh, good one. Is it Jay McKierney? Is that how you pronounce it? Jay McInerney. Jerry, okay, Jay McInerney. No shots fired at Jay. I just, I need to explain this. I worked in the in the Miami University bookstore over one winterum. And our job was to like, yeah, our job was to like put the books like up on the shelf and some class was reading this book because I was stacking them. And then it it became something I just kind of like read while you were standing there, like trying to look like you were busy. I would just like move that book with me and just like read it throughout the day. And I like over the course of a week or two, I like finished it. It really gets you with its tense. So it's it's all written mm-hmm. with like, it's you know, second, you the it's narrator. Person. Right. Right, and, it was famous for that. And it's if the famous opening line, I mean, it's really great. You are not the kind of guy who would be at a place like this at this time of the morning. Like that's that that like really grabs you and mm. there's a long time when I would look at this book and I probably would have said it was like in my top 10 all-time books. I'm talking, like, college, post-college, when I'd be like, it's such a great, like, lively portrayal of 80s excess. And then I revisited it, (laughs) like, I don't know when, like, in the mid-2000s or 2010s or something. And I was like, this just seems like a narrator who makes a lot of bad decisions that he blames on his girlfriend's wife and his mom, and it's and a lot of like inside baseball yapping at New Yorker writers, and that was it. Huh. <laughs> and then he walked away. You and then know, I was just like, I, "That's I, okay." I, and the last time I updated my books, I like didn't even have it anymore. So I must have just like got dumped it or gotten rid of it at a book sale or something like that. So um, it's worth a read. I, I, I think it's like it's fine. But I do remember there's a point, and you do this with a lot of these authors. I don't whether it's like Brett Easton Ellis or other people. Well,
1: but I the, was going to bring him up immediately. Like I think a lot of, I don't know, the '80s. I feel like, like I don't know that the '90s sort of had that sort of cultural moment with literature that um, the '80s did. I would say that the '90s was more encapsulated by music. Um, I'd and say filmmakers too. Like
0: you know, the auteure okay, filmmaker came back in the '90s.
1: Yeah, but I don't think that there's, like, I don't know that there's many, like, Infinite Jest might be, like, the 90s book, but, like, I think it mounts a better argument um, for its place, not just because, A, I love it, but, B, it's, like, it's different. It takes place in the near future. Um, It's about others, like, Freddie Snellis and Jay McInerney are, it's 80s, New York, money, and cocaine, like... And if you've tired of that over the last thirty odd years, those books are going to have a hard time staying on your shelf.
0: But at least Bret so. Easton like has works that take some big swings. Like, for all of its faults and issues, I mean, uh, American Psycho is like, uh, it has an aesthetic statement about it, uh, and it's toying mm-hmm. with genre. Bright Lights, Big City is like, yeah, like you just said, it's like a cocaine book. Uh, that ultimately get, kind of gets to the end, and you're like, "Yeah, screw that girl for breaking up with you." I don't know. I'm over it.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. All right. Uh, you're so, number four. My number four. Okay, another one that, and I'm gonna cut the crap after this, but I wanted to do this for this exercise and for the internet, and that was Radiohead's Kid A. Um, um, Which I go back and forth on all the time. And there are times when I love it and times where I hate it. But bluntly, like, OK Computer came out when we were seniors in high school. And Brad, you turned me on to that album. And I still think OK Computer is the best thing Radiohead will ever make. And it will be, but that's also because it's inseparable from me being 17 years old and this album coming out and redefining. what rock and roll and an album could sound like and then kid a came out when we were in college and the amount of anticipation and pretense around that album was is still crazy to me and then i rediscovered it a few years later and i was like oh i guess this is worth all the hype it's great but i also then i don't know i go i vacillate on this every day and i end up Hating Kid A at times. And the reason I included them on this list, and that I love that we're having this conversation, and I love the way it overlaps with internet culture, and in this case, internet culture is going to overlap with this podcast. I said this Nathaniel Friedman was talking about Kid A on Twitter recently. I wrote to him and I said, Radiohead is that band that when you put them with all the other. Mainstream rock bands, they sound the most avant-garde, but then as you age and you start to discover like real avant-garde music, like really out there stuff like jazz or you know, spiritual jazz and then free jazz and then weirdo 20th century composers, you listen to that radiohead in comparison to that, and they sound incredibly mainstream. Like dude, they still have basic song structures, like there are choruses and things like that. Um and so in that way, Radiohead, over the years, I love them, but they seem far less profound than when I discovered them, except for OK Computer, which I'll ride for forever.
0: Yeah, I, I yeah. really do enjoy OK Computer much more than Kid A. No,
1: it's just like, so that's one of those ones that I can, I can both still love them and think, think that they're not as profound as I used to. So.
0: Yes. And that that is also the definition of the type of argument you see on Twitter about stuff like this. So, mm-hmm. all right, my number 4 is when I finally started to recognize the difference between Prestige TV and Peak TV. Ah, uh, good good lying. And this was a show called The Killing <laughs> on AMC, <laughs> which the first half of the first season I think I just mistook as being aesthetically amazing and uh, really important. And then the end of the first season, I was like, I hated this. And then (laughs) didn't even watch the second season to when they solved the, whatever mystery they were doing. And then I think I just kind of realized in that moment, okay, super sad doesn't mean important. And, Uh (laughs) uh, and I guess I would like a murder mystery show where I actually like it, you know, kind of enjoy the plot too. So that was yeah, that.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I also think that like Amy and I rewatched the or watched for the first time The Sopranos last year, and in watching that, I couldn't help but think I was like, "Oh, everything that came after this is still just trying to do this." So it really took the wind out of a lot of sails. Th- this probably but that's called- a great line, dude.
0: The, the, this probably the seeds of this for me were also planted in Six Feet Under, which is a show that I know a lot of our listeners do still ride for, and that's fine. Um, but I gave it the benefit of the doubt. The Killing was the first show I remember watching, and and f- gradually falling out of love of every aspect of it as it went on.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that, I don't know. That was me and uh, uh, True Blood. You know, like, I remember it was like, whoa, it's like a vampire show, but about so much more. And then by like, I don't know, I ended up watching the final season of it because my wife was and I was just like, man, I can't believe we ever went for this. The Walking Dead. I'm also looking in your direction.
0: So, <laughs> right.
1: you know, it, yeah.
0: You're number three.
1: I, I've got a hot take. I'm debating whether to go with this. I'll go with this for number three and make that decision later. Hot restaurant shit. I was so into, like, fancy food and restaurant culture in my 20s. Now, look, I'm going to defend myself a little bit here. Like, I was working at a fancy bakery. Like, food meant a lot to me. I was reading a lot about it. I knew a lot about it. We moved to New York. I got to do that for a year or two. And then my career picked up, and we had a kid, and that shit just got, like, obliterated and now i'm like i can't understand anyone that will venture outside of their neighborhood to go to a new restaurant it's baffling to me um i hope all the restaurateurs make it through corona i love restaurants and want them to exist but that was something i was deep into like foodie restaurant culture for a while and then it ended and it just ended it was over for me
0: and (laughs) i'm gone so Well, my I, I really can't relate because I lived in like Peoria and then... <laughs> but I will say my number three is also kind of quasi New York scene related and that's a Broadway musical that for oh. years I considered to be like, oh, you would never lump it in with normal like mainstream Broadway musicals like Cats. And then I was like... Nope, this is cats. <laughs> I'm talking, of oh. course, about Les Mis. <laughs> so,
1: okay, I, I might defend Les Mis a little but Go for it. You know what?
0: It's a we're tight on time, so just rip it. Let's do it. It's the highest quality of mainstream pop mega musical, but it's still in that genre. Like it, it like when we talk about the definition of profound, I think there was a while when I was like, Les Mis is good music and it's catchy and it's, it's a cool show, but it's also trying to say something about humanity. No, it wasn't. (laughs) It's just, I mean, there's nothing about the French revolution that strikes me as either insightful about, you know, that era or capturing the complexities of what the revolution did kind of ends in a way where it makes you feel like the people won when they've really lost <laughs> and really? i and i don't think and i and i don't want to confuse its quality it's great like powerful songs are what they are but I, I it's not like it's not like boundary pushing the way that you would think of what sondheim was doing
1: yeah you're as soon as you bring up sondheim i'm like oh yeah you're right Pop musical, 100%. There you go. (laughs) Well done.
0: Yes. All right. You're you're number two. Uh,
1: Also, uh, Miss Saigon is awful. That was one of the first things I ever went to and saw. And I was like, oh, conventional wisdom is stupid. This is awful. Uh, My number two is a lot of the underground rap of the early 2000s. Um, Boy, did I go all in on that after I got over my number one. Some of it I still love. Uh, G- Bobito Garcia's um, Fondlem Records had some great releases, including the early MF Doom stuff, uh, and I'll keep that around forever. But like I was talking to a friend yesterday about most Def Talib and Talib Kweli are Black Star, and I was saying that a lot of Talib's raps have aged terribly. And he was like, like, what do you mean? And I wrote back to him, I bomb like Gigli. I'm a bear like Cam Neely. My favorite wrestler is John Cena because you can't even see me. And he wrote me back. He was like, are those real lines? I was like, no, that was me writing as a joke. But the fact that me texting that <laughs> as a joke could fool him into thinking those were the actual lines shows how bad so much of that rap from that era was it was dudes rapping about rapping and it has aged as poorly as that sounds
2: so.
0: <laughs> by the way i bought us five i can go five more minutes after into the uh two. All so right. we've, we've got i don't want to rush our top picks no, no. yeah you're you're the hip-hop expert of the two of us i I trust your gut on that um but i have a feeling i, I
1: should have just kept listening to more wu-tang and outcasts you know like I don't know. There's a reason some people didn't get signed to a big record deal because they're not good. So Brad, wait, hold on. Hold on. Before you get to finish that, like Brad, I bought an EP record by a guy named yak balls. His name is yak balls. Like that was his rapper name. Like looking back, like that should have been assigned to me that this has gone too far. You know, when you're, when you're spinning a record by ra- yak balls. So,
0: um so my number 2 is a movie I'm sure you have an opinion on as well. It's a movie I'd like I just no longer find the same meaning in it. And that would be the directorial debut I believe of Noah Bomback Kicking uh and Screaming. I don't remember if it's the one with or without the ampersand. Uh not the <laughs> not the Will Ferrell edition. So uh, l- real quick let me this is a movie about the sort of stasis uh, of trying to leave college, and I have a lot of thoughts on that. Gr- us having grown up in a college town, and me dude, having...
1: dude, '90s indie classic. Let's just the the cast is you know Eric Stoltz, Parker Posey, Noah Baumbach is in it. Um, He's in it for I mean, like two
0: seconds, though.
1: But still, like. It checks so many boxes, like, of that era. Um, Yeah. Okay, go on, go on. Okay,
0: so The Ringer just did a huge um, rewatchables episode on this. And I like that show. It's like Chris uh, Chris Ryan, Bill Simmons, and Andy Greenwald talked about it. But they were so reverential. And again, I'm not shitting on the movie, and I'm not shitting on them. And I rewatched the movie, and I was like, yeah, I kind of got the same vibe I got from before, which is this seems like an entire movie that was written on note cards or post-its that he had that like during conversations with his friends that was sort of Mm -hmm. stitched together. The central love story has like a really epic conclusion, but I don't really buy a lot of like the flashbacks and like how they, you know, the, the sort of like young person writing about love before they've really experienced much of anything. That's the way it comes across to me. And what, what I really didn't like is I, I think, you know, there's a bizarre kind of condescension of the movie of, you know, of, you know, not just like the, the classism of it or the way that it feels, but also the way they treat the townies and the way, like, it's an entertaining movie, but I, it's not a, something I look back on and say that just totally, it's the one thing that captures that moment in your life, which is the way I talked about that movie probably for the better half of, you know, the the, the 10 years after it came out.
1: Yeah, I never had that moment with this movie. Frankly, I had uh, the films of Wes Anderson to fill in for me on that. You know, like, I Rushmore kind of filled that void for me, and then Ten Bombs came out, and whatever. I got to go that way. So I'm not saying that I'm above all that, but, like, this movie was not that for me. Honestly, the only thing I can remember about it is the scene when there's broken glass, and rather than cleaning it up, They put the sign on it that just says "broken glass," um, which we would have done in the house I lived in my senior year, and I thought that was a funny joke. It probably came from real life, Um, but yeah, I think I I appreciate you including your own experience in this and how hard you rode for that movie, because it would have been easy for me to say, "Well, part of the problem becomes people like at the ringer holding this up as a profound statement on." The white upper class college experience. Um, whereas you including yourself in this makes it more interesting uh, that you went for it. I you know, think... that that was something that you bought into. I also, but also I want to say, like, I wonder how Noah Bombak would look back on it. Like, would he just say, like, yeah, that's a bit of juvenilia from when I was in my 20s and. I don't love it. Or like, I had to get through that to get to making all these other better movies.
0: Well, so. I think the way he took his career and the uh, the way his later films have been celebrated, although I, like, I don't like things like Marriage Story. Well, that's a conversation for a different day. Um, mm-hmm. I think this movie gets a little bit of a free ride then. And people mm-hmm. project meaning onto some things that might not be there. Again, there are meaningful moments within it. There are interesting sort of examples of, yeah, he's capturing like the mood or some of the anxieties people have coming out of college. It's more fun and frivolous and lighthearted uh, than I think is the way that it's sometimes spoken about, which is much more like mm-hmm. this is like serious and it has all this like human truth. And it's like,
2: ah
0: uh, okay. And I don't know that it was doing anything all that much different than a lot of other stuff that came out during that same time. All right, so right, you're, let's right. do our number ones, and then we'll we'll, we'll we will uh, we'll call it a day on this episode. So, you, what is your number one?
1: To, to me, number one is so easy, and it's come up on this pod before. But there's nothing that I'll ever go through that'll come close to this, and that is fish. And that I mean, I followed that <laughs> band and collected tapes, and like did a summer tour, and I think I only end up seeing them like 25 times over the course of three years, which I know that sounds crazy. To say only. But, like you talk to people that their totals get I don't know twenty five just ain't that big for a band that people follow religiously and has now been around for like over thirty years. But I had a three year period that you know, happens to overlap with like maybe the best three years of their entire career, ninety five to ninety eight. Um and so, like, I don't know. I was I saw some great shows and people loved it, and I loved it. Boy, Brad, when it ended, like, nothing in my life ever ended like that for me. Like, I was just at my last show, and it was the summer of 98 before my sophomore year in college. I was 18, about to turn 19 in a couple weeks. And I just remember walking out from this giant campground in Maine where they had this festival and just saying to myself, I hate this. I'm so over it.
0: Yeah, I I remember talking about that. I, I
1: just, like, stopped listening to it. Like, and then I got into underground rap, which some of, I love, still to this day, and some of it has aged poorly based on number two. But, like, man, nothing will ever compare to that. And, like, I just think that, in hindsight, looking back on high school era musical subcultures as a rite of passage is not an unhealthy thing. But I wish that I wish I had picked something that I wouldn't leave so wholly by the wayside. So anyway, there you go.
0: Yeah, my number That's one mine. is 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 like that too. And it's a movie that I think is aged super poorly in so many ways. It's a movie that I rode so hard for to the point when I I went and looked this up. A poster for this movie was on my wall. My freshman year in the dorm, which means this movie, either A, it was Ah. the only poster at Looney T-Birds that week when I got my stuff, or B, this movie, like, I felt like said something about me and about who I was, which is the definition of profound. And this movie is not profound on any level. It is Chasing Amy by by Kevin Smith. Yeah. Uh. Holden McNeil was set in his ways. The way he worked, the way he lived, and the way he thought love should be. But then, she showed up.
1: Let me guess. I remember going to see this in Cincinnati with you, like, a couple times. Um, yeah.
0: It's a classic case of a movie that went to a sensitive 90s brain like mine was, and was Mm. like... Yeah, like this movie kind of gets it. Like you know, it's really kind of opening your eyes to these different lifestyles, these different voices, and then you realize later, oh no, this is movies about a white guy who can't figure out why the world doesn't speak his language anymore, and it kind of leaves you with the impression at the end that like, well, he said he was sorry, so maybe it'll work (laughs) out. Uh, yeah, Brett, it's a great pick, and I give you,
1: I don't know, like I liked this exercise um as a way to look back on that sort of era in our life because both of our number one picks overlapped as like when we were 17 18 um and i don't know i liked it as a way to look back critically on some of that era uh there's still parts of that movie like the music in the opening title sequence sticks with me forever i love it like that kind of like slow picky guitar sound Um, I think people, men and women, like young men and women in their teens and 20s have been like, quote unquote, sitting on swings in movies, um, having deep conversations ever since that. Uh...
0: Look no further than the Silent Bob monologue at the end, which unlike in Clerks, where it works, where it's a simple phrase, it's kind of pragmatic. This is this endless nonsensical story yeah look i'm not trying to shit on the movie i just think nothing can say i thought this was profound more than it's on (laughs) my wall my freshman year when i'm meeting everyone new in my life so i have to put it number one
1: yeah and i'm the kid collecting fish tapes at the time and it's the same thing (laughs) so and that is also my number one so with that in mind Let's let Brad, let's do some shout outs and then kick it to the least underground rapper in history, a seven foot tall guy.
0: That is right. Shout out to our guest today, Congressman Sean Caston. Again, uh, you know, if you're just living or listening to this wherever you are in the United States, uh, go register to vote if you're not already or if you still have the opportunity, go vote in the election. I appreciate my congressman coming on and, and just sort of. Talking about you know his connection to sports, I think it's fun to showcase a different side of someone running for elected office. Um, if you live in the sixth, go check him out. I've been happy with his performance. I think he takes the job very seriously, and so um, I was happy to have him on and and uh, and just uh, introduce more people to him. So I appreciate him, him taking time out of his very very busy schedule to to do this uh, very very trivial and frivolous show <laughs> and, uh, and and and. In the immortal worlds of uh, future president, Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers.
1: Stay booty. Four more years to stay booty. (laughs)